You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. Good morning, everybody. Uh, If you're a visitor with us, thank you for being here. It's not normally this packed. Uh, We normally have two services. We'd love to see you next week at either 9 or 11. Um, But uh, we actually used to not have any service on this particular Sunday. It wasn't always the 31st, but just whatever the New Year's weekend was, we usually just let people be at home, which is a wonderful thing to do. We know a lot of churches that do that. Um, We started having one on this Sunday three years ago, and then 2020, and it just felt like it would be really nice to gather together as a community and commiserate about how terrible a year it was. So So we got together. It was a lovely time. I was able to give a gift of Silly Putty to all the kids. Um, Does anybody know how Silly Putty came about? Silly Putty is an accident. It was never intended to happen. What they were trying to do was invent a new kind of rubber. So Silly Putty was a terrible mistake. It was a failure. But all the people in the lab, as they were working on this, they found it to be a lot of fun. So they took this mistake, they took this failure, just like 2020 was. It was a big old failure of a year. And they took it and they said, what can we use out of this to make it better? And so they marketed it as a children's toy. And now Silly Putty is one of the most iconic children's toys that's out there. And it began as a mistake. It began as a failure. So we can take something that's poor and we can just sit in that and have it be unpleasant, or we can look at what good can we bring out of this. And so that was the beginning of this service that we started three years ago. Uh, We really wanted it to be light. We wanted it to be community-centered. Afterwards, we're going to have cookie and cocoa in the back. And so it's just meant to be a nice gathering time of us all coming together. So happy New Year's Eve. I'm so glad you're all here and you've made it. I hope you had a lovely holiday uh, for Christmas and celebrating Jesus and spending time with family and friends. We had a really good time at our house. It's a very busy weekend of family because we've got a lot of family. On my wife's side, the house had 26 people in there. And on my side, we had eight. So (laughs) big family, little family. Um, But it it was a wonderful time. But we're headed into a new year now. And does anybody here enjoy New Year's resolutions? Wow, this, it's much lighter than normal. Normally, it's like at least a third. Um, <laughs> I've, I've never really done New Year's resolutions myself. Um, I've kind of figured if I didn't do it at this point, tomorrow isn't going to make be magical for me. Um, but it is a good opportunity to reflect, to look back, this idea of renewal, just a good reminder of things that can change, potentials for the new year as we move forward. Um, But there are quite a few people uh, that really don't like change. Some people that they're just fearful of it, they like things the way they are, but there are some where it actually becomes a fault and they resist change so much that they'll ignore things that are actually good. And we're we're gonna talk about those people today. People that when change comes about, they become greatly annoyed. And that's the title of the sermon. And as I read that line through this, I'm like, greatly annoyed. That really encapsulates the feeling going through the people that are the leaders of this time. And it's an interesting sort of notion. Because greatly annoyed isn't anger. 
It's not rage. It's not fury. It's not indignation. It's annoyance. And that's actually how a lot of the world looks at this idea of Christianity. It's an annoyance. It's getting in the way of what, how I want to live, of how I want to be. And I just want you to go away, is the way the world looks at that. And so we're actually going to break this down as we move into this this week, of how we can deal with that as Christians. So Acts 4. We're just going through the first part of it today, and we'll go through the second part next week. And as they were speaking to the people, so this is Peter and John, they're speaking to all the people, the amazing healing just happened of the man who had been lame since birth. He's walking around, leaping and jumping, excited. They preached repentance to the crowd. Everyone's excited. Everyone's glorifying God. And here we are. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. So this group is greatly annoyed because what's going on here is these disciples are preaching a disruption to the status quo. If you haven't heard of that phrase or you've heard it, but you never know, what what does that quite mean? It means the existing state of affairs, especially regarding social or political issues. Now, the ruling class, the ruling group for the Israelites at this point are these people that are meeting right now, and they are cooperating with Rome, and they're heavily benefiting from that cooperation. You could call them aristocrats at this point. They've gained a lot of wealth because of it. They've gained a lot of power and prestige beyond even that of just simply being the leaders of this community. They don't want things to change. They don't want things to go away. They don't want to give up all the privileges and all the power that they have. They want to maintain the status quo. Because one of the big things going on right now is in this area, you have this group called the Zealots. So when we read about Simon the Zealot as one of the apostles, that's not just talking about how excited he was for Jesus. He's literally a zealot. It's a group of people that were political assassins. And they're terrified that this group is going to actually take Um, start gaining momentum and be killing off political figures of the Roman Empire. Because if this starts to happen, this means revolt. This means the Romans come in. And if we know anything about history, the Romans are brutal. They are absolutely brutal. When they come in, they wipe you out. It's they, you don't want it to happen. And they're terrified of this happening. And so that is actually a good thing in a sense of they don't want this to happen to their people. Their reasoning for them rejecting Jesus is a poor thing, though. Because when they look at this, any talk of a Messiah has this mentality within the Jewish people of the Messiah is going to come, he's going to be the offspring of David, which means he's going to be a king, he's going to rule, he's going to throw off all of our oppressors, And then we're going to bring in this new reign and rulership of the Israelite people, and it's going to be good. Well, that in itself implies a revolt must occur. 
we must throw off our Roman oppressors, and that's what the Messiah will bring. So they're trying to stamp out any talk of any sort of messianic individuals that there could possibly be. And so they're very resistant to any sort of conversation about this. And Jesus, they just dealt with. We're greatly annoyed. We thought we dealt with Jesus. We got rid of that guy. Now here you are preaching the same things again, and now we got to deal with you. We are annoyed. And not only annoyed, they're sad because they're the Sadducees. And they are sad, you see. Yeah. And do you know why they're sad? Because they don't believe in the resurrection. They really don't. They don't believe in any resurrection. They don't believe in any life after death. They believe in just either nothingness or an idea of an eternal sleep. The idea of going to the grave is that perpetual, you're out. Now, if you believe this, if you believe that there's nothing beyond this, that changes the way you live in this life. It changes the way you look at people. It changes your whole perspective on everything. YOLO. You only live once. Live life to the fullest. Get as much out of it as you possibly can. If I was born in this position, that means God loved me more and I'm more important than all of you. And so I'm going to get as much as I can out of this. This is this group of people, unfortunately. They're the ruling class right now. They're the ones that are making these big decisions. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter is filled by the Holy Spirit. This is an answer to what Jesus has said would happen out of Luke 12, 11 through 12. And when they bring you before synagogues and rulers and the authorities, which is right this moment for Peter, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Words when you need them. Now, there's a few things that need to actually be in place for this to work out. First of all, you need to believe. You need to believe the Holy Spirit still works in this day, that he's alive and well, and he's in you, and he can get, empower you to do this. You need to believe that first. Second thing is you need to receive what the Spirit has for you. You can't have a gift until you receive that gift. You must accept it in your life, that the Holy Spirit has done this for me, and I accept it, and I'm going to operate within it. And then the last thing that needs to be true is you need to be paying attention. As we move through life, it's perfectly possible for those first two things to have occurred and to be so distracted by your life that you never hear the promptings that God has given you. Because he is the still, quiet voice. I would love the Moses experience where he's burning in the bush. 
and you hear the voice come out of it, and you hear the thundering of heaven, the voice of God. That would be great. Who wouldn't love that every day as you go about your life? God just, as you go and take a left turn, okay. (laughs) That would be great, but that's not really how it normally works. He has operated in this way. The regular way that he communicates with his people is through his still, quiet voice, his gentle promptings to each and every one of us as his people. And we need to be paying attention to what he's saying. Now, he's been talked about as the cornerstone. What Peter is doing here is he is quoting a very particular psalm that becomes a rallying cry for all of the early Christians of this time. It's Psalm 118. It says, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is a marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And it's a wonderful thing. But it's not the first time this has been quoted, and it's not the first time it's been said to these particular rulers, to these exact people. Jesus has already said it to them. So Peter is quoting Jesus, quoting Psalm 118. And he's quoting Jesus from Matthew 21, when he's speaking to the leaders of the people, and he is talking about a couple of parables. And the particular parable that he is speaking of is about the owner of a vineyard who leases it to tenants, and then the owner goes away. And then when the time of harvest comes, he sends a servant to go collect his share from the vineyard, from those tenants. And so he sends the servant, they beat up the servant, and they send him off. They don't give him anything. So he sends a second servant. They do it again. They beat him up. They send him off. They say, nope, you're not getting anything. The third time he says, I will send my son. Surely they will respect the authority from my son. He sends his son. The tenants of the vineyard go, look, it's the heir. Let's take out the heir, and then we get the inheritance. So they take out the heir, and that's how the story ends. And Jesus said to them, now what will the master of that vineyard do to those tenants? And the rulers, these men we're speaking of right now, say he will put them to a horrific demise. He says, and the same will be done unto you if you do this. These are the ones who rejected the cornerstone. And that cornerstone will crush anybody who stumbles over it. And that's the warning to these people. This is the second time they've heard this idea of you will be crushed by this if you continue in this way. You will not make it out of this. You cannot just get rid of what's inconvenient to you. You can't just get rid of the annoyance. It's not going away. But people fear. They fear losing their power. They fear losing their authority. They fear losing their position. They fear change. And so they try to seize control in any way they can, even if it doesn't make sense. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they'd been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, 
They had nothing to say in opposition. So the healed man's just right there. I'm walking. And what do you say? You can't argue with it. It's glaring in your face. And there's nothing to say. They had done nothing wrong. There's no crime they've committed. There's no minor infraction of the law. They haven't said anything to cause any sort of issue. But they're putting forth something that these leaders don't want to get out there. They've become a nuisance to them. And so Peter chooses his words well here, the way he approaches these people. These people that are willing to do evil to get rid of the annoyance. Because Jesus was annoyance. And once they were able to get the people on their side, they killed him. This is the extent they're willing to go to get rid of an inconvenience. And out of Romans 12, Paul speaks to this. He says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with doing good. So here's the idea here. Peter is now in front of the people that crucified his Jesus. His dearest friend, his Lord, his Savior. They killed him. He watched them do it. And he could have railed against them. He could have screamed and hollered. He could have taken up the knife and tried to bend one of the zealots and tried to take revenge. But he chose not to do that. He chose to continue around doing the good that Jesus commanded him to do. To lay it aside and simply try to convert them to the truth rather than taking his own personal feelings into play and his desire for revenge upon him. Because when we read about Peter and the rest of the time before this, he's pretty impetuous. He's the guy who picks up the sword and attacks the servant. And he's learning now to lay that aside. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, so they ushered Peter and John and the healed man out, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them not to warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. A couple of interesting things right there. The first one is that all of this, this whole trial, isn't about breaking the law. It's not about them being immoral. It's not about God. It's not about justice. It's about keeping things the way they are. The whole trial is a farce. It's just a great show. Because everybody knows they've done nothing wrong. And so there will come times when people 
don't care about the good thing you're doing. They don't care if you're right. They just want their life to stay the same way it is. And if you're getting in the way, they are not afraid to put up a farce and put you away to get their way. They themselves want to decide what's right and what's wrong. It's original sin. I want to decide for myself what's good and evil, and I like my life this way, so I want that to be good, and you are in the way, so you are evil, and I will get rid of you. It's original sin, and it comes back again and again and again. And now, interestingly enough, what Peter says here at the end, well, Peter and John, they're not quoting scripture. They're actually quoting Socrates, which happened 400 years prior. So the trial of Socrates is in 399 BC. Socrates was also put on trial for not doing anything wrong, and he was put to death for it. He went to, he was a, okay, full story. Socrates, philosopher, very wise guy, great teacher, he was told a prophecy from somebody that he was the wisest person alive. And he said, that's garbage, that can't be true. So he made it his business to go around and interviewing all of the other figures that were deemed wise of that time to try to find somebody to prove this other person wrong and say, nope, the God was actually wrong. That's not actually true. But what he found is all the political figures and all the wise teachers and everybody that he interviewed, they weren't actually that wise. And he could have just left it at that and been disappointed. But like anybody that's a little too smart for their own good, he tried to explain to them how wrong they were and how they really weren't wise and understanding. They really shouldn't be in charge of things. And everybody loves someone telling them you're wrong, right? <laughs> Particularly those in political power. They just want to be on a big interview with a bunch of people around and you questioning and picking holes in all of their arguments and things and showing how unwise and how we really shouldn't follow them. Everybody loves that, right? No. He made a lot of people very, very angry. And it got to a tipping point where the young men of that time, the young wealthy men with too much time on their hands, thought this was hilarious, thought it was great. So they started doing it too. And that's when things really hit the fan for Socrates. Because now you're getting in the way here, you're getting everybody to no longer listen to us, you gotta go. And that's exactly what they did. They got rid of Socrates. And he said this, even if you told me to stop studying philosophy and stop going around and questioning and stop doing this, I wouldn't. Because it's better for me to answer to God than answer to you. Jesus speaks to us of this. He says, don't fear the person. All they can do is kill you. That should have some interesting weight when they say all they can do is kill you. That's it. Fear the one that can cast you into eternal damnation. Fear God in heaven. Let he be the one you fear. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So the leaders let them go out of fear of the people, not out of fear of God. The crowd was not on their side. They weren't going to get away with this. So that's when they let Peter and John go. Out of Proverbs 29, it says, The fear of man lays a snare, 
but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. And an unjust man is an abomination to the righteous. But one whose way is straight is an abomination to the wicked. And it's a very unfortunate truth. It's an unfortunate reality that those that love darkness, you are in the way. You are an inconvenience. You are going to cause them to become greatly annoyed. And it is terrifying to me the lengths people will go to just get rid of an annoyance. In this particular instance, right prevails. But that's not always the case. That's not always the reality we see in this lifetime. There will be justice at the end of time. But sometimes in this life, right doesn't win. It's not a Saturday morning sitcom wish it was. I wish right always won out. But that's not always the life we live. It, always, it all depends on the way of the mob. That's terrifying. We got to see that a couple years ago when we had the riots going on across the nation. People doing things you would never imagine because they're in this mob. And people tend to go crazy within that. They do things you would never dream of but it's simply the flow of the mob in the moment. Which is why our concern is to please God and not man, because man ebbs and flows. But God is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow. He is consistent and we can rely on him. And his truths are for every day. They're not dusty and old. They're for right now. They're effective now. When you implement them into your life right now, you watch your life transformed for the better. It may be hard in a reflection upon the world, but you'll find within your life and your relationships, things go better. You don't have that same internal conflict with people that you have prior. You stop worrying about as much things in the world because you start worrying about what matters rather than what's fleeting. God's truth is for here and now it's relevant. So what can we learn from this? From this thing that was written 2,000 years ago, this record? Well, first of all, some of the world is going to want you to believe that evil is good. They're going to want to deceive you. Because they want you to say it to vindicate themselves. Out of Isaiah 5, woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Paul writes to Timothy about this in 2 Timothy 3. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. That last one is a real terror people that lead others astray because of their appearance of godliness. Avoid such people. Psalm 37, turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. 
He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous, righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Difficult people and difficult times are not going away. We're not just making it through this moment. We're not just getting over the hump. If we believe our Bible, as I do, it's only going to get worse. As the closer and closer we draw to the end, the worse it's going to get. And if that's the case, all we can do is control ourselves. We can control our own actions and how we respond to the ebbs and flows of society because there are ups and there are downs and there are crazy things that you would have never imagined a hundred years ago happening right now. And we can't let culture dictate where we're at. We have to stay consistent with the Lord throughout all of it. All you can do is control yourself and how you respond. Because choosing to do good will not always be easy. There have been times in the last hundred years when choosing to do good was easy. The nation was very pro-Christian, very pro-morals. It was a nice high note, and we have dipped pretty hard from there. Choosing to do good will not always be easy, but it will always be right. Out of Acts 5, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Acts 16, the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Luke 21, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how you to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated for my namesake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. The world is greatly annoyed because you're getting in the way of how they want to live their lives. They don't care if you're right. They don't care if you're wrong. If they're wrong, they don't care if it's fair. What they care about is preserving what they have. They don't want you to continue disrupting their way of life. Out of 1 Peter 4, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. When we come to Christ, there aren't any promises of easy. There aren't any promises of worldly, happily ever afters. The promise we're given is that you will have God with you. That you are, your life will be abundant, but not by any worldly standards. 
and you will walk with the Lord every day, and He will keep you, and you will dwell with Him for eternity. Out of Isaiah 12, verse 2, it says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. Amen.